0: Hello everyone and welcome to the fifth episode of Dutchcast, the podcast about anything and everything collegiate. I'm your host Larkin McKay and in today's episode we have with us Dr. Boynton, uh, who teaches my cosmopolitanism class with Mr. Laurie. Uh, so just to begin, why don't you begin by introducing yourself, give some personal background, uh, how long you've been at collegiate, where you went to college, grad school, etc.
1: Okay, yeah, so um, I'm Dr. Boynton. I yeah, This is my second year at collegiate uh, and before collegiate. I was at a school out in New Jersey, um, and then I went to college. I mean, it feels like a long time ago and almost irrelevant. I went to Brown a long time ago, graduated 2005, same year, same freshman dorm as Mr. Vidal, and uh, we didn't know each other, though, and then I went to grad school. I did a year at Oxford. That was probably the best year of education I had because the people there were great, and I learned from them, not the not the teachers, like my friends, Um and then I went to Cornell for a PhD, 50-50 whether that was a mistake, Um, and I did a PhD in English, and I guess I I finished that in 2013, and I did a year as a visiting assistant professor at Holy Cross, during which time I realized that I I was not gonna find success in academia.
0: Um, Yeah, so just diving right in, we had a a great talking class on Tuesday about um, religion and morality, and just like changing your mind about faith and everything. Uh, and I made the point that I thought the human end goal, the end goal of people, would be to achieve happiness. And someone disagreed and said they thought a person's end goal was finding meaning. And um, I said that sort of the act of finding meaning and wanting to find meaning is, at least in my opinion, driven by happiness. Maybe happiness isn't the right word, but finding the, the drive to want to find meaning is driven by the assumed satisfaction of finally understanding like what everything means so i just what is your because you, you we we talked about this yeah. what's your
1: yeah i mean i don't have an answer to what so what's the point of everything but yeah the conversation was good in class it was good also because at the start of class one of your classmates told us that we'd been in a lull since parents night which was three <laughs> weeks ago we were both surprised to hear a three-week lull, um, but yeah, the idea. I think it was a, a problem with the word happiness, which is a kind of slippery word. And what's your question here? Let me make sure I'm answering. The I question, guess
0: just uh, what do you? It's obviously a huge question, but what do you think the end goal of a person is, or most people is? Like, what do you think people? Oh
1: yeah. Okay. Do. So I guess my answer to this... Let me give an answer because I think I can give a kind of bad... A kind of quality. I'm not a good philosopher. Let me just say that. I don't do philosophy well. Like, I like it. I read it. It's taken me a long time to even read it with any pleasure or understanding, but I'm not, like, a natural... Very few people are natural at anything. I'm not natural at anything, but I'm really not natural at philosophy. Very, very few people are able to just think philosophically. That said... I think that the, the account of ethical philosophy that I find the most kind of compelling as I get older and duller is Aristotle's because there's a circularity built into it that he acknowledges, which is, okay, what does it mean to do something good? Yeah. What is a good thing to do? And he says, well, you can be prudent. You can be just. You can be generous. you can be, And he gives you the virtues. And then, well, what makes those good? And he kind of says, well, they're good because you know they're good. Yeah. You learn they're good, and they're good. There's no getting outside of your own sense of goodness in a way. It doesn't mean you can't modify your opinion. You can't challenge somebody's account of goodness. But my, my hunch, my sense is that – that's not like really a hunch. My sense is that, like, the 19th century German idealists get this from Aristotle, where you're always operating from within – a set of values, the ab- ability to determine that something is good is just innate to being a person. Mm-hmm. And so you can't really define a particular external account of goodness. I can't say, well, there's a, a, a yardstick to goodness that exists outside of my way of determining whether particular actions are good. Yeah. So I'm, I can't ever rise above saying that person was a coward, they ran away when it would've been helpful to stand up and fight for what they believed in. And somebody goes, well, what's your theoretical account of courage versus cowardice? And I don't think you can provide an answer beyond saying, well, you know, courage is not being reckless and also not being cowardly. It's a middle ground, and, and that depends on the situation. So the point, the point of that is to say that, you know, what, what makes somebody happy or, or where, how do people find value, or what's the thing people aspire to? People aspire to live lives, I think this is the Aristotle point, is that are virtuous. Yeah. What does that mean? It means that they aspire to live lives that are good. What does that mean? Then he says, well, I can provide you with a list of virtues, courage. If somebody lives a courageous life, a generous life, a just life, that's a good person. Yeah. How do you know what that is? Well, let me look at the things they've done. So there's no end goal. It's not like at the end you're like, I found meaning, here it is, let me hold it up. It's not like oh, I'm finally a happy person. In fact, his whole account of the virtues, and it's kind of controversial, is he'll say the virtuous man is, is, kind, of, is kind of a happy man, it's kind of this thriving. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that means is the person who is the best version of themselves can you can only explain that bestness or account for it in terms of this sort of bundle of words we have that he calls virtues. I almost think he's saying, describing a way we talk about value and saying that value doesn't emerge except from having conversations as people, which means we are capable of ascribing value to things. I don't know how much, so, so it depends and it's going to emerge in, pro- in the process of having to get through life making decisions. That's kind of like a weak answer in some way, but it's also helpful because it prevents grand – it's not about maximizing something you can't ever really calculate. It's not about positing some ultimate goal. There. That's my, that's my attempt.
0: Yeah, because when you really sort of think about it, there's no – I agree there's no way to describe what is good without using the word good or words that are just limited how the human mind has a does i feel like we don't have the capacity to articulate what the idea of good is because it's just something you kind of understand yeah. but someone who what would you say to someone who has a twisted idea of good because everyone seems to have a different idea of what good is someone yeah. says Good for me is just maximizing my happiness and doing, kind of being selfish, but I think that the best life I can live is maximizing my happiness regardless of anyone else. Like personal utilitarianism. I don't care about net happiness in the situation. I care about my happiness only. And you would say, well, that person's a psychopath because they don't have empathy or care about anyone. But who's to kind of convince them that that's not good if that's their sort of, understand their natural understanding of good.
1: Right. Well, this is where I think that if that's their natural understanding of good, they've almost emptied the word of meaning in their own life yeah. because presumably they're capable of judging somebody else as doing what's good. Yeah. And maybe they do think everyone should just go ahead and maximize their own happiness. But at some point that selfishness becomes a pretty pretty fuzzy category because as you said, well, you know, what if extending what if what if maximizing my happiness means doing something for my kid or for a friend. Yeah. And then I say, well, that's I do that because I care about them. Why do you care about them? I start having to appeal to something beyond my own happiness. I think that values get into the conversation, and then that person then has obligated, if we're playing some philosophical game, to account for those values. I just don't know how they can maintain. I mean, there are very smart philosophers who maintain this. who How they can really maintain as narrow a conception of happiness as maximizing a good that cannot in turn be elaborated on or accounted for, either in terms of virtues or some language that is not... Selfishness is a very hard concept to give substance to,
0: Yeah.
1: beyond without any of these other concepts as you just said you kind of are you you kind of have to use other concepts Mm -hmm. and if somebody can't use a concept of cowardice at all or courage or generosity then they wouldn't seem like a fully formed you'd have to try to explain it to them Mm -hmm. and if they never understand it you might wonder if there's any maybe you just can't even have that conversation
0: yeah because obviously a lot of Morality. You could you could say it's objective, but uh, I mean I feel like it. At there is obviously a strong argument argument that it is subjective because someone would kind of convince themselves or have to actually believe that something that someone else is. If I say this is hard to put into words. If I think someone else is doing something that I think is bad, I don't think another person would necessarily want to do it if they also thought it was as bad as i thought it was right. so they kind of convince themselves it's quote unquote good even though most people would disagree and then we consider that person a pariah of society because they <laughs> right. don't they don't agree with obviously no one's idea of what is good is exactly the same but they're close enough there's like generally agreed upon acts that are good right. to do yeah. so but i think my point about in class about happiness was it's hard to describe why Doing helping a friend makes you happy because, at what you're actually doing is making someone else happy. Yeah. But you are, it's a weird concept, but you are selfishly helping someone else because it also makes you happy to make them happy. Right. So it's not happiness. It's really the problem with the word happiness because you can't really put it. You can't really put it into words. If I want to maximize my own happiness, that the connotation of of that is that I throw any sympathy to the wind and just do whatever I want to do. But that can all, I feel like it's it's kind of the word, but it can also entail doing things for other people that, Make, you, make other people very happy, but also make you happy as a result of yeah. making them
1: happy. I have, two, I have two things, three things. I can't remember the first. The, the first, One thing is that philosophers like to make distinctions. and then call, like Aristotle's interesting because he doesn't, like the typical philosopher moves to say, ah, you're talking, and I will, I'll do it here. It's like, you're talking about selfishness. I think you need to distinguish between two forms of selfishness. Because one of these forms of selfishness is, this, this is why it's an empty word. If, if, if I take any satisfaction in it, does that mean it's a selfish act? That seems like, at the very least, that's an inadequate, it's inadequate to say that's a solely selfish act. It's kind of like a flip of Kant's, like, you can't treat somebody merely as a means to an end. Like, of course you're going to treat people as a means to an end because, you know, we do need other people to help us. Mm-hmm. So if I can't, like, disqualify somebody from moral action because they happen to, like, ask somebody for a favor. You can't, like, pounce on them and say, ah you're treating them as a means to an end. No, he says merely. And I think there's a version here of selfishness. Just because you get satisfaction from it doesn't mean it's selfish. And if that does mean it's selfish, it's also something else. The other thing I think is interesting, I'm not accusing you of some sort of warped imagination, but that when you, and I think this happens with a lot of people, when they conceive of a a perfectly selfish being maximizing their own happiness, and this is I think probably just the time we live in, the world we live in, they imagine a sociopath essentially who has no interest in sympathy who takes no displeasure from the suffering of others why would we default to what most of us would then consider an unnatural form of humanity in order to provide an account of what we have been saying is a natural impulse like it's a little bit weird to say selfishness is natural and then to say what's my ideal of selfishness it's this monster that no that we would say is not natural so that can't quite be an adequate account of selfishness. So I think there's something missing there. And then I don't remember my other point. But oh yeah, it has to do with something you were saying earlier about the good, is, is I think that this is where I think, yeah, we can, I can always disagree with you about whether a particular action is generous or good or worthwhile. I mean, I'm not going to disagree whether something makes you happy, though I could actually. I could say, you think this makes you happy. You love playing video games all the time. It's not going to make you happy. You're addicted. That's a problem. That's not true happiness so i can't actually even dispute happiness but in that case it's interesting because i'm actually coming closer to disputing goodness and that's where that aristotle happiness goodness is quite clear but okay we can disagree i don't think that means it's subjective it doesn't i mean yeah it means that we all are people and people are capable of disagreeing and we have words and we're capable of using words in different ways i don't think objective subjective captures the problem i think it's that We need to step back from the fact of disagreement to say, if you're able to disagree, there is a common thing you're standing upon, which is the notion of the good, like the notion of the true. They're not particular things we think. They are thought itself. You cannot have thought without being able to say should, or that's right, or that's wrong, or that's true. You can't even dispute whether this very account of morality we're trying to work through. You couldn't even dispute it without these concepts. Yeah. So if you give up on those concepts, you're giving up on language. Language is normative. Language has truth and, and, mora- and, and norms and, and ought built into it. You ought not to say that. You're using the word the wrong way. Yeah. So it's, if you take a step back, those are, those are just baked into. And I think a good account of ethics addresses it at that level of generality, which is, ha- offers almost no practical advice, because practical advice always is situational. I-
0: yeah to to your point on on selfishness, I think the more that I think about it, it's sort of determining labeling someone as selfish, you or selfless. you could sort of imagine a scale or a, a spectrum on how much they value, how much making other people happy makes them happy. Because you could say the most selfless person who just helps other people all the time but feel so good about themselves a for monster. helping other people a is, is a selfish person <laughs> because they're only helping these other people to make themselves feel good, but they're simultaneously a selfless person because they're only making other people feel good and not really considering what do I want. Right. But they're at, simultaneously also considering what do I want, I want to make other people happy. Yeah, so it's a, it's a spectrum on how, yeah, yeah. It's how much do you weigh I I'm gonna Elevate myself compared to elevate someone else, and how do I value how happy those two decisions make? Yeah,
1: me. I think that's right, and I think you're right. It's there's something about well, this is the the, the grammatical or the the maybe just logical problem of if everything is. It's it's actually again another I said the kant example another classic another kind of classic problem philosophy though I don't really I don't fully understand it is you know if you will it's called the incontinence of the will which is you know an unfortunate unfortunate name for the problem but that's what it's called yeah. and it's if you will to something and then if you are saying I want this to happen I know it's good why do people always just not do what they know to be good if i resolve i'm going to you know really watch you know you know i'm not going to eat i'm not going to eat meat for a, for a month i'm going to I I believe it's good for the planet, whatever I might believe. I I don't want cows to suffer. And then I go and have a burger two nights later because I can't control myself. I mean, how does that happen? How do I have conflicting desires within myself? And the reason that's an analogy, I think, is what you're talking about is like a version of this is like you can't – how do you provide – everything I do can be converted into – like, I, why can't – I don't know what my analogy was going to be. You can cut this part. But no, don't cut this. It was going to be something along the lines of um, if, if you're always willing – if you want something good to happen or you want your own satisfaction, if your satisfaction is baked into everything you do, yeah, then how could you have any action that isn't accounted for in terms of your satisfaction? So you now have this term of, like, gaining satisfaction – that seems to just cover everything. So does it even serve an analytical purpose? If there's nothing that cannot be explained by the motive to maximize your satisfaction, why are we even invoking this?
0: Because you would, you would gain satisfaction from both not eating meat for a month but also eating the right. burger.
1: It's like everything is yeah. making me happy in some sense. Exactly. So it's not doing much work. Um, yeah. So that's,
0: that's sort of what – that's – That concept is sort of what I was trying to get at with the happiness point, that everything you do is driven by your happiness. Again, happiness is a weird word, but sort of everything that you do is a step towards happiness subconsciously. Not, I think this is going to make me happy, I'm going to do it. But I think just decision-making and how people do things are to, they obviously want things to turn out good for someone or for themselves or for someone else, but those are all in a way like, maximizing their own yeah. or happiness. It's, it's a it very a slippery, weird concept. And
1: it's an even weirder word when you realize, you know, that com- the word in it is hap, which is, like, luck. So we talk about we're this whole idea of, like, pursuing your happiness and creating your own happiness or whatever people say, the new agey, you know, whatever, be your happiness, whatever people say. So I'm sure there's a be your happiness poster somewhere. Is like, well, it's the, the word itself has luck built in. I mean, you don't control There's a lot of things you can't control, and happiness kind of it happens to you sometimes. Yeah. And that's, that means that it's not within your power. And the other thing you were talking about is sacrifice, which is another weird. People like selflessness. Like, so, why is self-sacrifice cannot always be, cannot be, I mean, that would, it can't be good all the time. I mean, you wouldn't want your friends to, you wouldn't want people who care about and love to sacrifice themselves all, for, for any number of things. In fact, it, you'd probably really think hard if they were volunteering to sacrifice themselves. You'd really want to think hard about whether somebody else couldn't do it instead exactly. or whether there weren't a machine that could take care of it. So it's kind of a weird, like, example. It's like the selfish, selflessness or weird norms, weird extensions of norms.
0: So I've I've jotted down here just nature versus nurture when determining your moral framework and what you live by. I what, Just jotted down here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess in your opinion, to what extent are humans naturally or biologically able to determine their own morality? Do you think that if two people were raised in a vacuum and identical, with identical situations separate from each other, they would make the exact same moral decisions? No. Or do you think that it's just your brain chemistry and you're sort of born with an innate sense of the good? Or is it like you're educated to say this is good? And then can you educate someone to say this something that most people would consider bad is good and how, if someone, if I I was raised from a young age to think that doing something that we agree is bad is actually a good thing, at what point do I say, wait, even though this is the only information I'm given, I disagree with it just because of biology, because I don't I have a feeling that it's not correct.
1: Yeah, I don't have an answer to a lot of that, but here I have a few scattered thoughts. One is that, I mean, I do think, yeah, I think that two, I mean, there are many ways identical and yet different people raised in this identical, they will have different responses because people are different genetically, their brain chemistry is different, all that stuff. Um, And then in terms of the idea of... uh, of like self-critique. I think that I don't know how I don't know how it happens but yeah people are capable of self-critique.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean at some point there's like um well first of all you learn if you learn how to think you learn how to talk yeah. you learn language you are learning some some form of right and wrong. I mean just even before you learn language the first word you know babies understand no very quickly they understand yeah. things not being right to do and being right to do and they're learning that very very early. Um, then And so I think it's just that's just kind of baked in, the possibility of right and wrong, or the possi- and whether we disagree or agree on particular conceptions of it, yeah, that's probably baked into people, uh, baked into being a person, but that doesn't say much. But there is this way in which you, you – contradictions are probably good. We learn things – we learn lots of different schemes of value, of how to act, when to act one way, when to act another way. And there's all sorts of contradictions in them. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't act consistently. We act differently from situation to situation. We act differently with different people. And then we have to decide what situation is what situation, and then we could disagree over our assessment of when to apply which rules for action. I, I don't know if there's anything on to this, but it seems like an offshoot of that that would be it's a, a happy accident is that I always have different schemes jostling in my head of ways to potentially act. And if I were decide that one situation is not what it seems, or if i just happen to i don't know if something in my brain happens to slip i will maybe start applying a different moral scheme of judgment to a situation than i had been brought up to to do yeah and then i might notice hmm this seems like not a great situation I draw an analogy, suddenly they, they see uh, this situation seems connected to a scheme of judgment that's different from it, and then I'm able to crit- critique it. People are capable of imminent critique. Systems with, contain within themselves the resources for critiquing themselves. Not all critique can come from without, and from without it's often dangerous and ineffective.
0: <laughs> wow, this is... Uh...
1: You know, there was something else, somebody said, we almost read *Chinua Achebe, Things Fall Apart in this class, and we. Mm-hmm. It's like, if it, were, it really needed to be a year-long year long class or a spring semester class, that novel ha- is about that. Yeah. Have you read it? You should read that. It's, yeah. like, incredible. It is so central to the things you care about.
0: Um, the Peter Singer, the... Yes, the Australian bioethicist. Yeah, the philosopher you told me to check out. I did a little bit of research on him, and something that came up was that he is a vegetarian because... He wants to minimize the pain of yeah. animals being killed, but he might eat muscles because he thinks that yeah. muscles don't have a capacity to feel pain, <laughs> and that the joy that he, the joy that he yeah. has from eating the muscles is greater than the pain <laughs> that the muscles feel because they're, like, they're, yeah. uh, what well, they they can't they don't have capacity to feel pain, but I guess for, for being a vegetarian, um. That, that kind of gets back to your point of the, the, what we were talking about a little bit before that how do I weigh my own happiness from eating this juicy hamburger to the guilt that I feel
1: ending, from ending, ending, ending the life of a cat. I also never even had happiness because it's probably raised in like terrible shed with no light and force fed. And the Force fed grass so that somebody could put grass fed beef on the label. Like as if like we're like, oh, it's grass fed. This cow had a happy life. We imagine them, like, prancing around a pasture. The, the cow is still in just a shed eating some grass compound anyway.
0: Yeah, but um, just, I, don't, I don't really even have a question here. It's just it's sort of interesting. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's hard to ask a question about that. But how, how does your perspective on or the, how immediate a problem is to you, how close you are to it, if I saw that cow get killed, I probably would want to eat the hamburger less than if I didn't see it get killed.
1: Would that be ethics or revulsion?
0: It Probably revulsion and is there, because... Maybe at
1: some deep level they're not that different.
0: Yeah, because, I, I mean, I'm thinking the more distant a problem is for me, the less I'm likely to yeah. care about it. Because what we were talking about, wrapping your head around... Uh, what we talked about in class yesterday, wrapping your head around just how much suffering there is and how much bad happens just in yeah. the world, its you can almost drown it out. it's—it's it's, There's so much of it that you don't even numb yourself to it. You just don't think about it because yeah. it's impossible to wrap your head around. So with Peter Singer being a vegetarian and refusing to eat meat because he thinks that these problems that are distant from him, this cow being killed so people can eat hamburgers, is... I mean, what what is your opinion? Do you think that it is, like, morally correct then to be a vegetarian because you are minimizing the pain of this cow? Or is the pleasure that I gain coupled with – the pleasure I gain from eating a hamburger coupled with the fact that I kind there's so many cows being killed every day that I kind of don't yeah. pay attention to it? It does, like
1: – I know. I don't know. Like, Peter Singer is great to read because – not because he's – I mean, like, like philosophy is – philosophy has continued because it's all wrong. I mean, there's, there's, they all argue with each other. There's no, there's no way of arbitrating some of these disputes. However, he's a really good philosopher to read because he's easy to disagree with, and he does reveal, like, the, the not a logic, but the kind of inconsistencies or what it means to adhere to principles from point A to point B. Maybe the desire for consistency is a weakness of philosophy at some point. In this case, I think there's two things. One is I think Peter Singer would say it's a very easy – very, it's very easy for me not to eat meat at this point. It's very easy. It's not a big decision. I'm not saying I have to go out and, and, and it's not a lot of effort. I just, just don't order the burger. Okay, I don't buy the beef. I save money. Peter Singer is an effective altruist. He probably, and I'm serious, sends the money to a you know, charitable cause that has a high impact per dime. Um, so he would say it's not really much of a dilemma. Yeah. Simple. Then there's the other side of this discuss, which is like the whole yeah. I'm mean, he's calculating the pain of a muscle. I'm like that sounds a little. That's like a parody. I mean. Then I'm just like really just don't eat the muscle. Yeah. I mean, how do you know you're you're ha- I mean, there, where is it, What is this number based on? Yeah. Now. The middle ground is the consistency thing, which is in general, like personally, yeah, I try to minimize my red. I, I don't think I think it's the environmental things actually, the more kind of ter- you know the the high impact you know the rainforest being though it's soybeans too actually. Um, I don't know, yeah, that's it, a funny. I don't have a good answer here. I have no true. answer. But you had no question, so yeah. we're we're on the we're on the same level playing field right now.
0: Um, uh, this this made me think of something that's gonna sound completely random, but. I, I kind of have this jotted down, but this is uh, we're sort of talking about it. We're semi referencing what I'm gonna okay, say. Okay, don't, um, you don't to apologize for jumping. Uh, I'm all over the place. So, are you familiar with the term NPC? No. It's a it's a video game term. It's it's uh it's a term that. People use that NPC stands for non-player character. I'm pretty sure it's non-player oh, character. Oh, I know where this is going. Yeah, yeah this and is gonna it's gonna be
1: some crazy like you can't like the ethics of killing a non-player character. Please tell me it's not. No, no, okay. it's
0: it's um, but it's a term uh n- non-player character in reference to a video game where you control a character in a video game yeah. and all of the other characters if you're not playing online with another player with a, another person who is controlling their character. You, there's another random person walking down the street in your video game, and that's just a line of code. Like they're just, yeah, it's just is, a random.
1: This is, yeah, this is the, I, I grew up in the '90s, so this is like every Mario game. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. The, the it's a little little turtle in Mario Ninja that is, I jump on is an NPC. Yeah. yeah that's all I know. I don't even know. I have mean, never played a game really where somebody else.: Yeah, because they have them remotely. Now where it's I know it's, I know they have them, but yeah, I don't but yeah, this is all I know.
0: <laughs> uh, but a non-player character, and that it, yeah, it's just a line of code it's sort of now used as a joke. It's been popularized to as sort of an insult like oh that guy's an npc. Like oh, he doesn't wow. have sentience. He's he's just a ran, he's a an it's it's hard to put into but he's yeah. just a no, random guy, yeah. right? He doesn't have control. He's just it's a string of, of code. Yeah.
1: It's terrifying because it's like wow, a new way of dehumanizing people. I mean, that's what it is.
0: But um uh this obviously, people don't take the term seriously. Like, oh, yeah. oh, he's an NPC. or oh, he, he just acted robotic. dud.
1: It means a light bulb that doesn't work. Yeah. So you're like, oh, it's a dud. It's he's
0: a dud. Like, but do you do you think that the if I were to genuinely believe that I'm the player character and everyone else is an NPC and they're just a string of code and like they don't they aren't real they they don't ha- it's hard to wrap your mind. No, I've around about this the, yeah. No, I have.
1: have you ha, thought, does like, everyone what if you're else a real person? But it is, a, it is, like, I think that the one thing that's interesting is if you took this as a thought experiment yeah. and said, okay, and this goes back to your distant, near thing, most people probably live their lives as if beyond a certain, I don't know, radius or whatever. They might as well be living in a world of NPCs. That the, Most people, I think, think about people far af- away geographically yeah. far away, and, and I think socially, you know, whatever, any other, the, all the things that separate people, people become less and less real.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's, there is, a, there is this, I mean, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a horrible, like, I mean, yeah, this whole, what if I'm the only real person? What if everything's an, a, a figment of my imagination? It's kind of like an old, yeah, it's an old philosophical problem, but there's also, the, the flip side is a really good, Question is, what does it really mean to treat somebody else like they're a real, real person? And even the people you are closest to and love the most—in fact, especially those people—that's where we come up short. I have a four and a half-year-old. She's very difficult. I mean, she's—it's a, a very difficult age. She's an age where she's declaring, on the one hand, she wants—she's a vegetarian. She doesn't know what that means, and then she's like demanding some meat thing for dinner that we don't have, and this is within a span of twenty seconds. But as a parent, you, you have to remember that she's a real person trying to. It's, it's easy to just say, don't do that, just stop, you know, go to your room. Mm-hmm. She's trying to work stuff out. That's hard to do with people you care about. It's hard to make people real in your own mind.
0: I think that at some level, a lot of people. That's sort of a weird question asking if it's morally sound because yeah. a lot of. I feel like a lot of people do it. Like, I have no idea what's going on in New Zealand right now. I couldn't tell you New Zealand, like. Political events, or the, what the average daily life, uh, daily life of someone in New Zealand I, looks like, because I just don't like you. They're so far away that it's hard to. You sort of treat like they don't. I don't think about the population of New Zealand, even though they're on the opposite side of the world. But I don't think about them right. daily because right. I just don't. They're not immediate to me. There's no reason that I would have to think about them.
1: Have you ever thought what is Peter Jackson? You know, New, the Lord of the Rings director from New Zealand. Yeah. Like, at this very moment, what is he doing? Exactly. I mean, he's probably sleeping. But yeah. Or just, it's a, kind of a fascinating thought experiment. Just choose anybody. Like,
0: yeah, what like, are they doing?
1: Ray finds. What's he doing right now? You, is he you, just, what's he actually doing? People are doing things all the time. It's mind-boggling. It's such a simple, like, boneheaded thought, but it also is really weird to think about. Because you can't
0: wrap your head around it. It's just so, like, the world is so big.
1: Yeah, and this is kind of the central—the cosmopolitanism is like, well, what can it mean anyway? You—you, you, this is even a—even a critique of any modern state is you can't even—you don't know anyone who lives in your political end. How do you, yeah. how do you even form political institutions when you—you you don't really? I mean, this is—and you know, there's answers to this, but like, how do you? How much do you have to know other people? The next thing we're gonna read has some stuff to say about this. And there's a quote that I'm going to give everyone tomorrow from a 19th century British novelist, George Eliot, where she, I mean, I'm Al Mangala right now. It's a very famous quote from the novel Middlemarch, where she basically goes, like, we can't, if we could hear this, if we had our our hearing attuned to be able to hear the heartbeat of every squirrel, we would just be deaf with the roar of the world. Like, if we could, we cannot tune in that much. And silence, and she says we're well, she has the phrase, we're well wadded by stupidity. And she's, like, stupidity is like a cotton wadding that protects us. Because we cannot, we are not calibrated to imagine or to know beyond a certain limit.
0: Because if I thought about every bad thing that happened to everyone in the world today, I would just go insane. Yeah, Like, there's so, I, I couldn't cope with it.
1: I think there's a reason, and it's defensible. I don't know whether thinking about everybody's suffering is a good thing, because it's not clear what good it does. Even if it were a good thing, I think that, most of, a lot of what we do is falling, fall short of being good. But, and, and, but, and what the challenge is not always doing what's good in every possible sense at every possible moment, but realizing we aren't. And not learning just how to live with that in some sort of either, well, I guess I'm just an imperfect being, or in some of the sort of self-flagellating way. But this is where forgiveness matters. Which is something we haven't talked about in class. We haven't talked about it here. It's like a, I think the flip side of all of these of ethics is forgiveness. Learning how to forgive one another. Yeah, it's hard. That and that's hard to do.
0: Um, yeah, I don't really have. Uh, those are my notes. That's, that's it. Uh, kind of gone down the list. It was, um, yeah, I guess that's it. Uh, like I'm gonna
1: come across as like a, a complete blowhard here, rambling
0: about ethics. <laughs> fun. I like this. Yeah, it's it's very. Just even talking about <clears throat> like ethics and morals is difficult because I feel like if I just say a random thought experiment that I have at any given point, I might just sound insane. Someone's gonna be like, "Oh, how can you even think that? You're you're a terrible person. How could you even think of a situation and say that this is morally okay?" But a lot of it is just grappling with that, with am, like almost, am I insane? Like, is am I? Am, am what I am? If, sorry, am is what I am thinking of? Yeah. Does that make me crazy?
1: Well, I think you're, I think you're, you're, the thought experiments you have are not they're – the, they're helpful thought experiments because kind of like Philippa Foot's trolley, you know, trolley experim- yeah. experiment, it's not really supposed to make you like just know this is the right answer, I don't think. Yeah. It's supposed to scuttle your moral intuition and scuttle your reasoning and make you realize that maybe even the way you're approaching the questions of morality – are, are not, the way you, the approach itself is, needs refinement.
0: Do you think that it's possible to change your mind on what like, moral framework you choose to live by like halfway through your life? I don't
1: think most people live by a moral framework. I mean, and not in a bad way. And I think that's also why I prefer lit- I don't do, you know, I'm not a philosopher. I didn't do philosophy. I like it sometimes, but I like literature because literature involves maintaining oneself between contradictions that can't be solved by analysis. It lives by principle, by knowing it depends. It's situational. And it, it, it's always embodied and situated and placed. And that's true to life, I think, in a way, philosophy when it tries to universalize.
0: Because no one lives by, no one says, okay, today I'm going to live by the Kant moral framework it and tomorrow I'm going to be week. utilitarianism. You should
1: try this and see if there's any difference to how your week turns out. <laughs> like You have one day where you just, oh, wow, that was an egregious day. But, yeah. Try it.
0: Because <laughs> I think people probably switch they're more like maybe, yeah, m- maybe no one maybe people do average out to a moral frame, or you can say that the way this person lives their life, their life is in this moral framework. They traditionally make decisions be weighing this over this, and this is how they act. I could probably predict how they would solve this right. dilemma by observing them in their life for years and years and years, yeah. but yeah. that can change that's like an average. It could probably change any given day, because two examples, I might solve two seemingly similar moral dilemmas in a completely different way just because of who I am and my experience. Or
1: because of, yeah, but this is, and this is, to bring back Aristotle, that's where I think that the Aristotelian answer is right, is most of us probably do live in the sense where it's like, if you decide you're not going to help somebody and you invoke a Kantian principle, I might say, that's, that's cowardly. Yeah. Like, I don't really care about your – aerosol like, I don't care about your full moral principle. Like, that's cowardly right now. If you decide you're going to go do something that I – you know, I don't know, go spend if – your, if your parents entrust you with money and you're like, I'm going to go spend it all on designer clothing because I think it's going to really help the economy and benefit a lot of people, it's utilitarian – Again, I might go, well, that's, that's wasteful and reckless and deceptive. So I'm using these Kantian – I'm using my Aristotelian – I'm using terms. I'm using virtues to criticize it. And you can argue all you want about the Kantian the grounds or the utilitarian grounds, but ultimately what we're going to end up doing when we disagree is having to parse over how I describe it. And that's where it's hard because you might get – I might say you're wasteful and you say I'm not being wasteful, I'm being generous. Well, we just, we're going to ha- disagree, but we're not disagreeing because we at least have these, that's the, we're operating in this, in this shared kind of framework, and that's what ethics is. Okay.
0: This was a great conversation. Thank you. I know, you. this
1: was a lot of fun. I hope that you like what we're doing in class next.
0: Yeah. Um, so to all the listeners, uh, I am hoping to have a published episode with Mr. Sabri over the coming weeks. He was sick last week, so I wasn't gave, able to interview him, but... Uh, Thank everyone for listening, and see you again soon.